Okay, Judges chapter 6. As we've been going through the book of Judges, we've been watching these repetitive cycles, sin cycles, I guess you can call them, at a time in Israel's history, a span of about 400 or so approximately years in Israel's history, uh, where they went repeatedly through these same cycles where they would turn away in rebellion from the Lord. And then as a result of that, they would experience the natural outfall and consequences of rebelling against God and his word. They'd find themselves enslaved typically to uh, some enemy that would come in and would oppress them and dominate and they would find them then enslaved and in servitude for a time period and after a season of misery and oppression and, and all the difficulties that went along with rebelling against God in their life as what happens in our lives as well uh, they would then cry out to the Lord and they would beg for God's mercy and deliverance and God would raise up a judge and usually like a military type leader whose spirit would be upon and they'd come and they'd bring liberation, they'd bring salvation to the people. Again, their hearts would turn back to the Lord, they'd serve the Lord for a period of time and then usually when the judge died or a series of time went by, they would then turn back and the same cycle would start all over again. And it was a very sad and unfortunate thing that it just they were never able to break the cycle. Uh, and it is always a very sad and unfortunate thing even to this day, whether it be a, a nation or a people or individuals, when we live our life in that same kind of vicious cycle, that's never God's will for us, that we just live in these miserable cycles. And we're intended by God's will to make progress spiritually, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and to go forward in the things of God, not to just continue to be uh, sort of static and never make progress and always fall backwards every time we go forward and fall away from the Lord and then we get all excited and we take two steps forward and then we fall away from the Lord. That's never God's intention for us. And this was the sadness of what was happening at this time. We've watched now, this is the fourth cycle of this happening. And as we come now to uh, Judges chapter six, uh, we come to this next cycle and the next judge that God will use, a man named Gideon. Uh, and we'll see the most press of the judges that are recorded for us in this book is actually given to Gideon. Uh, chapter six, seven, and eight deal with Gideon. Uh, he gets the majority of verses dedicated to his life and to his ministry, how God used him, even more than Samson. Samson runs a close second. We know him a lot more. Uh, people know Samson, it seems, more than Gideon. But nonetheless, there are some great lessons from Gideon's life that we can learn as well. So look at me in verse 1. <clears throat> Very familiar statements as this cycle continues again. It says, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So once again, they turned back uh, into unhealthy and evil ways, idolatry and sinful practices once again as a nation. And as the result of that, so verse one, the response, the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. So at this point, God needs to do what God does as a good parent. And the Bible says that the Lord chastens or disciplines his children, those that he loves. Hebrews tells us that. And because they rebelled against the Lord and they turned away from him, God at this point now has no other recourse as a good parent, a just parent, a loving, wise father. He brings discipline upon them once again, as he has in other time periods that we've seen already. And this time he now uses the Midianite people, a foreign nation nearby to them, to basically be his instrument of chastisement, uh, which is just a good reminder. And we see this throughout Israel's history, that at times God would use foreign nations to basically come and harass or attack his people. And sometimes they would be God's instrument to bring his discipliners chastening upon people. He would make his people vulnerable and weakened and they would be overcome or an enemy would prevail against them, have success against them because God would retract his favor or pull back his protection from them, that hedge of protection he might have around them. And this was the case once again. Now, 
We're told God uses the Midianites to chastise his people, the people of Midian, for a seven-year time period. God delivers them over uh, to this enemy, and it says the Midianites were prevailing against Israel. Verse 2 goes on to describe the conditions. It says, because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which were in the mountains. So uh, you can begin to see the way that they were living, <clears throat> excuse me, that their existence, if you look at what's described there, that they were now living, creating living spaces for themselves in dens and in caves. That's how animals live. So you begin to see what happens as the result of their sin and their rebellion against God, which requires the Lord's discipline. If that weren't enough, their sin and their rebellion against God is reducing their lives to an abnormal existence. They're now living in caves and dens and carving out living places in the wilderness because of the oppression of the Midianites prevailing over them. And they're living in misery and hardship and they're struggling and sort of reduced in their quality of life. This is not the way God intended for them to live. But the reality is, is that when we live contrary to God's way, and when we choose to reject God's will, and we do what's evil in the sight of the Lord, and we decide, well, I don't want to do things God's way. I'm going to do things my way, or we choose to backslide, or whatever it may be. The reality is, this is always one of the outcomes. It brings a reduced standard of living. We begin to live in a substandard way. We begin to struggle with things that we don't have to struggle with. We begin to experience misery and hardship and, and loss and, and, and struggles in our lives where like these people here, rather than living a natural existence, they're hiding out in dens and caves and living like animals because they've reduced their good experience as the result of their rebellion against God. And that's always a outcome of that. Well, verse 3 tells us what was happening during those seven years. It says, so it was, whenever Israel had sown, that is, they went out and sowed their fields, their crops, <clears throat> the Midianites would come up, also the Amalekites, another neighboring territory that they worked in alliance with, and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and destroy, notice, ruin, ravage, destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance, no food or provision for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. The picture there, if you ever you know, watched a documentary of locusts before, I mean, locusts are, I mean, these are devouring machines. When you have a locust swarm, a plague of locusts, that's what they're known for. Locusts come in and they just ravage and devour a territory. And this is the picture of what the Midianites do. They would come in and ravage and just devour the territory. And it says there that they would leave no sustenance at all. They would come up numerous as locusts. Verse 5, both they and their camels without number and they would enter the land again to destroy it so israel was greatly impoverished some of your translations say that they were uh, struggling with starvation the idea is because all the food and the crops and even the animals would be destroyed because of the midianites and therefore the children of israel ultimately then cried out to the lord so for a seven-year period here's what's going on the Israelites would go out and you can imagine how disheartening this was and they would sow their fields and they would plant their crops and they would tend their animals and, and their, take care of their herds and their cattle and so forth and they would put all this labor, hard labor into doing all these things and then as, right before harvest time would come or as soon as harvest would come, here would come the Midianites and they would come in and they would basically just ravage and ruin and annihilate everything that was produced in the land, whether it was crops from the harvest, whether it was their animals from their herds, they would just come in periodically and whether they were stealing it for themselves or they would come in and they would just ruin all of the food and the sustenance. So basically everything that they gave themselves to, you can imagine how disheartening this is, they put all this work 
into raising their crops and doing all these things and as the result of doing all that work that they labor so hard for ultimately it would all just be ruined it would be lost they'd get no benefit from it they wouldn't be able to enjoy it they found no satisfaction from it and it would all just be taken away from them and you can imagine how disheartening that must have been I mean how discouraging that must have been to put all your effort into something and it all just falls through the cracks if you would but again, as we look at this, sometimes, not only is this, of course, the way that the enemy does work, and let me say this first, because this is an enemy doing that to them, uh, this is the MO of the enemy. This is what the enemy wants to do. The Bible tells us that Jesus said that he's a thief who wants to rob, kill, and destroy. And so he often will entice us away from the Lord and try and get us to do things that we shouldn't do, and we turn away from the Lord. But the reality is, ultimately what he does is he just gives us a ruined, miserable experience where he just robs us and rips us off and there's never any enjoyment anyway. And listen, if you're a believer, if you're a believer, it's even worse to, to turn away from the Lord because you know the difference. So you can't even enjoy a good old-fashioned sin anymore. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, before you were saved, before I was saved anyway, I could sin and there was some level of enjoyment in it because the lights weren't on and my conscience was kind of deadened to the things of the Lord. But once your conscience is awakened by the Holy Spirit and you know the truth, the reality is, is even to try and enjoy sin, you feel so stinking guilty and miserable, you can't even enjoy a good old fashioned sin anymore. So it's just twice as miserable. You've got too much of Jesus to enjoy the world and too much of the world to enjoy Jesus and it's like you're straddling a fence completely miserable. And all the devil's going to do is just rob and rip off anyway. It, you're never going to get anywhere and you're never going to make progress. They never made progress during this time. This was the whole point. They put all this work into it, all this labor and effort and they never got anywhere. They were just always empty, starving, struggling constantly. And the enemy's going to do that in our lives. And I'll tell you this. I think sometimes as we perhaps maybe rebel against the Lord or we start to turn away and do things that we shouldn't do, sometimes God will allow us to go through that struggle process and he'll let us put all our effort into something and we'll, you know, oh, I'm, I'm doing my thing. That's going to be all right. I'm doing my thing. And God will let us put all this labor and effort and work into something and he'll just let it all fall through the cracks. Because sometimes what it requires, like it did for them, it took them seven years of things falling apart and falling through the cracks and being miserable and impoverished to finally come to the place where it says there in verse 6, then they cried out to the Lord. And you know what? I'm a firm believer. Sometimes God is willing to do whatever it takes to get people's attention. And it may be something different in all of our lives. I think if we were honest, we would all to some level admit that in some way or another, there were times in our life when God really got our attention by allowing us to struggle with some things temporally, circumstantially. And God maybe allowed things to get really difficult and us to experience some hardships because that's what it took for us to kind of be woken up and to God to get our attention and us to cry out to the Lord and for him to be able to come in and to help us and do for us what he wants to do. So after seven years of this miserable existence, it says they cried out to the Lord, verse 7, and it came to pass, again, God's merciful, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent, now take notice, I have this underlined, it doesn't say he sent a judge. That's what they wanted, right? Because, they, hey, we've done this before. Last time, we, 18 years, we cried out to the Lord and he sent us Ehud. And the time before that, we cried out to the Lord and you know, he sent us Othniel. And so we just got to cry out to the Lord and Lord, deliver us. Because whenever we're struggling or suffering or going through a problem or something we don't like, isn't that usually what our prayer is? Lord, get me out of this. Deliver me. I'm so sorry, Lord. I'm sorry I made a mess. I'm so sorry I created all these problems and hardships. And Lord, so deliver me. Please get me out of this spare. And we cry out to the Lord because the main thing we want is just relief. That's our natural human tendency. But just wanting relief is not repentance. God wants repentance. A lot of times we just want relief from the struggle. And so we pray, oh, Lord, just please, please, please. And the fundamental issue is God saying, listen, I, I, I want to give you relief too. But first, I want your heart to be repentant 
Because if your heart is repentant, that's the deeper issue. Because if I just give you relief, here's what God does. If I just give you relief and your heart's not repentant, you'll very surely just turn around and go right back into the same thing again. And God understands that. So it's interesting. They ask, as they're crying out to the Lord, no doubt for deliverance, they're expecting a judge, but God sends them a judge ultimately. But first he sends them a prophet. He sends them someone first who will speak the word of God into their lives in a way that they would need to hear what what God needed to say to them. So again, they want an immediate deliverance, fix the problem, but God first wanted to give them the truth and rebuke their heart for their wrongdoing so that they have a heart change which will lead to a lifestyle change which is ultimately the more important issue. So the Lord sent a prophet to them. We're not told who he is. Uh, a unnamed prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you, verse 9, out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. So what's God doing? He's reminding them of his prior works in their life. He's reminding them of the times when he's shown them before his power and his might on their behalf to come to them and to deliver them. And I think in some ways what God is reminding them, listen, there's no problem on my end here. God's saying to them, do you really think the problem is is the last seven years I was losing the arm wrestling match against the Midianites? Do you think that's what the, the problem is not on my end here. The issue we need to deal with is on your end, God's saying to the people, it's what's going on in your hearts. I've already shown you before I can deliver you from the Egyptians. If I deliver you from the Egyptians, do you think the Midianites are a problem? It's not that I have a lack of power. I can't perform my work, God says. I've worked before, he says. I've already brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. I can whenever I want to, God's saying, whenever I want to. And he's going to show that in this chapter. I can easily deliver you from the hand of the Midianites. In fact, we're going to see in chapter 7, God's going to actually, with Gideon, show Gideon, you know what, you have too many people. Actually, you need to make the odds harder so I can show my power better. I mean, so there's no problem for God to bring deliverance. But God wants to get to the root of the issue because he's more concerned about the heart of a person or the heart of a people than he is comfort and circumstances and convenience being the way because those are things that really are on the peripheral and are secondary so he says verse 10 also i said to you i am the lord your god here's the issue he says and i said do not fear the gods of the amorites in whose land you dwell in other words don't reverence other gods don't engage in idolatry verse 10 here's the problem but you have not obeyed my voice God says that we need to get to the root of the issue. There needs to be repentance in your heart. You have not obeyed my voice, God says. The reason why things are the way they are is because you know my word, but you're not obeying my word. You know what I've said to you, but you're not responding to what I've said to you. God says the problem is the rebellion of you not obeying my voice. Verse 11 says, Now the angel of the Lord came... And sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah. Now, again, Ophrah, not Oprah. Okay, You'll get that off your mind right away as we, we go through there. We don't talk about Oprah. Let's talk about more important things here that don't pertain to Oprah's opinion on things. And I better stop there before I can get in trouble. This angel of the Lord comes. And as we said before, the angel of the Lord oftentimes in the Bible, and it seems again this on other occasions, typically is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. A a time where prior to Jesus coming in the incarnation in Bethlehem, that in some personage, Jesus would show up and temporarily perform some ministry, provide some direction, do something on behalf of God's people. Again, remember, Jesus is eternally existent. Uh, His life didn't begin in Bethlehem. That's when his his earthly life began as a man when he came as a redeemer. But Jesus is a part of the Godhead. He's been around and existent for all of eternity. And it seems there are these times when this would be what we call theophany or or a Christophany when an angel of the Lord is, it seems in this passage, because we see it going back and forth from the angel of the Lord to direct reference to the Lord himself speaking. 
I believe this is another one of those occasions where this messenger of the Lord or angel of the Lord that shows up, it seems in somewhat of a, a human form of a personage dialoguing now with Gideon is actually the Lord himself who came. So it says that he comes... And it says, and he's in the area of Over, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon, now here's our character, was threshing wheat in the wine press <clears throat> in order to hide it from the Midianites. Now, because of the conditions, as we said, they would come in, ravage the land, ruin all the crops. Here we find Gideon, and he's threshing wheat in, it says, the wine press which is a very unusual place to be doing this at. And the reason we're told specifically he's doing it there to hide what he's doing from the Midianites so they don't come and ruin what he's doing. Now, this tells us two things. First of all, that he is clearly very fearful of the Midianite people or he wouldn't be doing this in hiding. Number two, it also tells us he probably does not have very much to work with or he wouldn't be able to do this process in a wine press. Typically, you would thresh wheat on a place of higher elevation where it was flat. And the idea was is that as you work through the process of threshing the wheat, you would then toss it up into the air and it would, the air would help separate the wheat from the chaff and the chaff would blow away in the wind and that which was the meat or the part of the wheat that you wanted would then the heavier part would drop back down on the ground in a pile. So typically you did this at a higher open elevation where you purposely could catch the breezes and the wind to help in the process. Gideon's doing this process and he's doing it, it says, in a wine press. Wine presses were usually located in the exact opposite. They were located usually in areas where they would build a depression, almost like a like a, a bowl shape. If you ever, you know, maybe picture like an in-ground pool or something like that, where it would be the exact opposite. You're in a depression maybe in a carved out area of a cave or something like that. So he's in a very unusual place. But again, the reason he's doing this is because he's terrified of the Midianite people and he's lacking courage. So therefore, he's doing it in this place and doing it, it says, in order to hide from the Midianites. Now, let me make a point in, in relation to this. I have the word circled there in my Bible in verse 11. He was doing this in order to hide. And, and I think this is something just as a reminder for us by way of application. Whenever you find that you have to do things in hiding or in fear of getting discovered, that should always be a blink-blink indicator something's not right. Because that's not the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is things are in the open. They're in the light. So if there's ever a time when you find yourself doing something and you need to do it in hiding or you need to do it in hiding because you're afraid of being caught or exposed for what you're doing, that should be a real quick indicator something's not healthy here. Something's not right here because never is the will of God to do things in a hidden, covered way. God thing, does things in the open, in the light, where they're out in the open. So he, again, because of the conditions they're in at this time, is doing this in the hiding which is an unfortunate thing but watch what happens verse 12 says the angel of the lord then appeared to him as he's down there and this must have really spooked him if he was already afraid <laughs> looking over his shoulder all of a sudden whew, the angel of the lord shows up there in the wine press and says to him look what he says verse 12 the lord is with you you mighty man of valor now here's this man gideon Quite frankly, he's the, the poster child for an absolute coward right now. He's down hiding because he's afraid of the Midianites. And now the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Gideon, the Lord is with you, you mighty, courageous man of valor. And, and again, I'm picturing myself, if I were anything like Gideon, he probably did one of these. Is there another Gideon here in the wine press you're looking for? You, you, mighty man of valor. You mean wimpy man, yellow back of fear? I mean, that would have fit me a little bit more. Mighty man of valor, what are you talking about? But again, what a beautiful thing to see here as God is beginning to work in Gideon's life and has a plan for Gideon's life. God does not see Gideon for what he was in his past. And God does not even see Gideon for what he is right now presently. God sees Gideon for what he's ultimately going to do in Gideon's life. 
which is to make him a mighty man of valor. God sees Gideon in his potential. He doesn't see him for what he was or even for what he is. God sees Gideon for what he will be, for what God knows that he can do in Gideon's life and ultimately make Gideon into. And God knows what he's going to turn this man into and sees him, listen, in his potential. What a beautiful thing to realize that though God knows about your past, oh, my past, God knows about your past. Okay? He knows about your past. Here's what's even freakier. The thing that bums you out so much about your past to God, that's not really your past because God knew that before you were ever born. Because God knew everything about you and even everything you were going to do in your entire life. When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, you didn't even start doing all the dumb things you did in your past. And he already died on the cross for all of it. So he's more familiar with all your flaws and failures and mistakes than you are. So God knows what you were in the past and what you did in the past. And God knows who you are presently. Oh, woe is me. And God knows. But here's what God also knows. God knows what he's going to do in your life. And he knows what he's able to do in your life. And he sees the end result. He sees the finished project. And what you may see right now in yourself is so insufficient and so incapable as Gideon did. God says, no, no, no. But I see ultimately what I'm going to make you become. When God works in our life, when God sees us, the Bible tells us that God sees us as a finished product in Christ. He already sees us justified. Romans says he actually already sees us glorified. That is, when God looks upon your life through your faith in Jesus Christ, he not only sees you righteous in his son Jesus, not by your performance, we know that's not true of all of us, but he sees you righteous in your position, and more than that, he actually already sees you glorified in heaven in his mind because he sees the end from the beginning, and he already sees you finished, glorified, in the presence of God, worshiping eternally, and he's completely confident in the process because he's the one that's orchestrating the process. And he's the one changing us and developing us and making us into what he wants to make us. And how wonderful, because oftentimes, let's be very honest, when we look at people, we look at people and we view them and then we treat them and we relate to them in regards to their past, right? Oh, well, I mean, do you know what, kind of, you know what that guy's past is? I mean, do you know what he did in his past? Do you know what she did in their past? Or we look at them and where they're at in their present condition. And a lot of times we treat people and relate to people according to who they were in the past or who they are presently. And the reality is, is God sees people in their potential. Love believing all things. God sees what he's able to become and what he will become as God works in his life. Well, I'm thankful God sees me that way. And I pray that by the grace of God, he'd give me a heart to be able to, at times, look at people through the lens of faith, the way that he does, and love and believing in the power of God, and see the potential of God ultimately in a person. And really what God is ultimately able to do, and to view them in that way. Romans 4 says that God calls things that do not exist as though they did. Because God knows what he's able to do and perform by his power. So as you look at people, relate to people, See the potential of God in them and, and let that be something that encourages you in regards to how you pray for them, relate to them, and be encouraged that God sees you in that way as well. So Gideon, he says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of our. Gideon said, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then are all these things happening to us? He's asking the why question. We've never asked that, right? And where are all his miracles? which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So again, Gideon's not only afraid at this point, he's somewhat cowardly, but he's confused. He's got questions. Here's a guy, he doesn't have it all figured out. He has things that he doesn't understand. He's struggling with some misunderstandings. He's not even going to put the pieces together. He doesn't fully understand how God's working. He says, why are things happening the way they are then? I don't understand. Why is it so hard? And, and where's the power of God? It doesn't seem like that God's working the way we've heard that God once worked before. And he's not able to fully put all the pieces together of the ways of God. And what an incredible encouragement. Here's a guy. He, he's got fears. He's got concerns. He doesn't have it all figured out. He's confused. But those limitations don't intimidate God from still being able to take him and use him for his purposes. God is still going to work through his life. Look what verse 14 says. The Lord turned to him and said to Gideon, go 
in this might of yours. The idea is go in the strength or the condition you're right now in and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent you? So go, God says to him. God simply says to him, look, all I'm asking you to do is one simple thing. Step out and obey. All I'm asking you, Gideon, is not to figure out how or, or to find the strength or the ability. He's saying, Gideon, I'm looking for one thing. Can you give me availability? Will you go? That's the key word. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to obey? Are you willing to make yourself available? Go in the might of yours that you have now. And he says, and you shall save Israel. The idea is, if you go then God's presence and God's power will go with you and will give you what you need to be able to save Israel from the Midianites. And he says, the reason have I not sent you. In other words, I think God's trying to say, look, this is a divine commission. What matters most is you simply do what God has asked you to do. That is the key here. God wanted to use Gideon. That was God's prerogative. He says, have I not sent perhaps the emphasis on the word you? You're the one, Gideon. Have I not sent you? I didn't send somebody else. I'm sending you. I picked you. I selected you. All I'm asking for you to do is just go. Take the green light and go, he says. Have I not sent you? Well, Gideon does, like many of those called of the Lord often do in Scripture, and we do at times as well. Verse 15, so he said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. So he begins to default to struggling with what? His own insufficiency. Well, how could I possibly do that? I mean, I, I'm not influential, he says. I'm not an influential person. Who, who am I to lead people? I'm not influential. I, I, I'm incapable. I, I'm weak and I come from such an unknown people and I'm, I'm just, I, I lack everything that's necessary to do what you're asking me to do. And in some ways, you almost wonder as God is going, right, that's the whole point. Because those who think they have a lot to bring to the table don't depend upon me. And they either want all the glory or they do it in their own strength. And the Bible tells us in Zechariah, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And so sometimes God may ask us to do something and we have to be careful that we don't begin to disobey what God's asking us to do or wanting us to do. Maybe God wants you to do something or to step out in some way or to serve some way and you, you sense that God's leading you to do that but you're struggling with the I syndrome. Oh, I'm not influential or I'm not talented or I'm not, I, I'm not powerful, I'm too weak. I don't, and, and we get all caught up in that. Listen, God knows all those limitations God knows our insufficiency. Paul says in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, who is sufficient for these things? But he says, but yet God has made us sufficient. So part of letting our life be useful for God involves two things. Recognizing first that we're not sufficient and coming to terms with that. Coming to terms with, yeah, I'm, I'm not sufficient for what God wants me to do. But there's a sufficiency from God where God can make me sufficient by his power and his presence. Look, verse 16, here's the answer. The Lord doesn't even get into discussion with Gideon about the excuses he's making. It says, the Lord said to him, here's the, what matters, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites. So he says, Gideon, the answer to your struggle very simply is this. It's not somehow finding what you think you need in yourself or creating or generating what you need to feel more equipped, Gideon, it's about the assurance of victory is going to be dependent upon one thing. My presence and my power will be with you. I'm sending you and I wouldn't send you to do that alone. I'm just asking you to act as my human instrument. So the assurance for Gideon's victory was the presence and power of God being with him. God's promise that he'd be victorious if he just obeyed the calling. And the same is with us. We struggle with all the same things and perhaps God is saying, listen, if you'll just go, if you'll just do what I'm asking you to do, whatever it may be in some small or big way in all of our lives, the Lord says, I'll be with you. 
All you got to do is just make yourself available. I'll be with you and I assure you my promise is that you will be victorious and you will succeed if you step into what I'm asking you to do and let me be with you in the process. Well, verse 17, Gideon then said to him, if now I find favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Now, the idea here is is Gideon's trying to, to make sure that he's fully is this really the lord this personage again it seems to be somewhat representation of a man he wants to know is this really the lord himself is this really you god he's saying do not depart from here i pray until i come and bring out to you an offering and set it before you because an angel would not receive worship or would not receive an offering only god will receive worship or an offering and he said in response I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat, unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. That's about 35 pounds or so of flour. And the meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under a terebinth tree and presented them. So this probably took about a, you know, again, I don't know if the last time you've prepared a, a you know, a, a goat and broth and all that. I mean, this probably took a while. I mean, he presents, he kills an animal, he skins it, he cooks it, all he brings it out now as an offering. In verse 20, the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, lay it on this rock and pour out the broth. And so he did. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Notice, here's the miracle. And fire rose out of the rock. So instant barbecue grill. Who needs a gas grill when God can bring fire right out of a big rock? Cook your goat meat. Fire rose out of the rock and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. So as he brings out his offering... He's instructed, put down the meat on that rock there, pour out the broth, put down the bread, and it says instantly this fire comes up, and it says there, verse 21, it just consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. So a very clear sign of a miracle of God took place. This fire just breaks out of the rock and consumes all the food, indicating to Gideon the, the power of God, the miraculous representation. And at the moment that that happened and the fire came forth, the angel of the Lord departed from his presence. And verse 22, the response, which Gideon was hoping for, Gideon then perceived, he sensed very clearly that this was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The idea is he's fearful because he realized he's just had an encounter with God. And they believed if you had an encounter with God himself in his presence that potentially you, you could be struck dead to be in the presence of God. So this overwhelms him the reality of having just been in the presence of God face to face. And the Lord said to him, verse 23, to reassure him, peace be with you. The idea is do not fear. He says, you're not going to die. It's okay. You don't have to worry. So Gideon, in response, built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. Or there's that Hebrew term, Yahweh Shalom or Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. Recognizing that this is one of the attributes of God, that God is a God of peace. He's, he's not a God of, of harm or destruction, that he wants to be peaceful. And to this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abizarites. Now it came to pass, verse 25, the same night that the Lord, notice, said to him, here's an instruction now to Gideon, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooded image that is beside it, which would be like an Asherah pole. He was to cut down the Asherah pole and use that for the firewood to then do the second thing. Verse 26, build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of this rock in proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So notice what happens. Verse 27, let me just read that as well. It says, Gideon took 10 men from among his servants and he did as the Lord said to him, but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city who were engaged in this Baal worship, it says he did this uh, at the time that he did because he feared his father's household in the city too much to do it 
by day, so therefore he followed through and did this in the night, that is in the cover of the dark because he was afraid of the consequences. So what does God do? God's calling Gideon now to do what? Basically become the deliverer for the people of Israel. A pretty big task. He's struggling with his own fears and insufficiencies, but God's calling him to do a great work. God's saying, Gideon, I'm raising you up. You are the man that I'm going to use to save my people, to be a deliverer. But he says, before you take the public stage, Gideon, he says, we need to begin to test your heart and we begin to give you a small, if you would, test of obedience. And he says, here's where you're going to get started. Ministry starts at home. And so he says, Gideon, it's evident that in your father's backyard, apparently, is the altar to Baal worship, right in your own father's backyard, and an Asherah pole. So he says, listen, I want you to start there at home among your own family, and here's a small test of obedience to get you started for ministry, to get things right among your family first. So he calls Gideon basically to do two things. God asked him to obey in two ways to remove what was wrong, the worship of Baal, to tear down that altar in the middle of, of, of the night and the Asherah pole next to it and to then use that wood, it says, to then, verse 26, then build an altar to the Lord who they should be worshiping. So God asks him, number one, to remove what was clearly wrong among his family and then to instill what was right by establishing the worship of the Lord. And what God does here is he's beginning to test Gideon's heart in small things, saying, Gideon, if you're able to do ministry at home and you're able to work in that area first, and if you're willing to work in that area first, then that is what begins to prepare you to be ready for things in a public and a larger role. And again, this is a principle all throughout Scripture. That our Christian life, our spiritual life, these things need to begin in the private areas of our lives in our personal lives in our family lives you know let me it's very easy in public to live spiritual it's i'm going to say something and perhaps if you've ever been i don't know what it's very easy for example to go on a missions trip for a week and be in a foreign country and preach the gospel from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go home at night than it is to somehow maybe just talk to one of your relatives face-to-face, one-on-one about Jesus. And I don't know what it is, but there's something about this intimidation, this fear we have of doing ministry at home. But if we're not willing to do ministry at home, if we're not willing to do ministry among our families, and sometimes that involves, like Gideon here, the fear of the consequence of, you think there was a little bit of intimidation? Not only was the whole town doing this, but he's in a very patriarchal society. He's going to tear down his father's altar to bow in his backyard. <laughs> you think he's not thinking there's going to be a little bit of repercussions? Maybe Thanksgiving is going to be a little bit awkward next year? You just tore down dad's altar in the backyard and then you build an altar to Yahweh God? But this was an important test of his heart. Was he willing to obey the Lord in small things? Because as we obey in small things, we're willing to do therefore then and prepared for bigger things and sometimes this is what the Lord asks of us the Lord says listen I want to use you in greater ways I want to do other things through your life but I want you to start by getting things right in your family first to put your attention there first because sometimes there are things among our families maybe that are, are clearly happening that are wrong and the Lord says I want you to get that rectified There are some wrong things that are going on in your family and I want you to deal with those things first and get those things reconciled among your family that are wrong and I want you to then instill what is right, what honors me in your home and among your family and once you're willing to do that and be faithful in that, then God says, now I see you're ready for things on a more public level or for a larger responsibility. It's interesting that Gideon does this again. He's intimidated, but yet he obeys faithfully and he does this. And it's interesting to watch the reaction. Verse 28, it says, when the men of the city arose in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? 
And what they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this. It didn't take long for somebody to blow the horn on him. And the men of the city said to Joash, to his dad now, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal, because he has cut down the wanted image that was beside it. But Joash, his father, and I think this was to his own shame, his own shame of face, he was forced into having to say this, but it's very wise what he says because he realizes what his son did was right and now he's humbled by it. I think as a father, he's quite humbled and he realizes what is right and that his son took a stand for righteousness. So look what he says, verse 31, as they say, bring him out. We need to kill him for tearing down Baal's altar. He said, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? In other words, wait a minute. If he's your God, why are you saving your God? Isn't your God supposed to save you? He's saying, how ridiculous is this? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by mourning. If he is a God, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jeroboam, meaning let Baal plead against him. So Gideon's name was changed to remember what he had done because he had torn down this altar. And the Midianites, verse 33, and the Amalekites, the people of the east gathered together crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel, which is what we call the valley of Megiddo, where ultimately Armageddon will happen. Verse 34, we begin to see what happens now. But the Spirit of the Lord, again, that picture of the baptism, the anointing for enablement and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and then he blew the trumpet and the Abizarites gathered behind him. Again, who are the Abizarites? Those, that's his family clan. We read it earlier. So what he thought was going to result in him being put to death, actually, it caused the people when the Spirit of God came upon him to rally behind him. They were the first ones behind him now getting ready to go to battle and they respected him for the strong stand that he took. They may not have liked it at first, but it's interesting. His own clan were the first to gather behind him because they sensed the Spirit of God is on this man. The Spirit of God, the anointing of the Spirit is upon his life and God had baptized and anointed Gideon for this ministry that he's about to enter into. And it says, verse 35, Gideon then sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and gathered behind him. And then he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali and they came up to meet him. In verse 36, so Gideon then said to God, We'll close with this. We're lucky. We've perhaps heard of this before. God, if you will save Israel by my hand, look at this little phrase, as you have said, which indicates he knows what God already said, right? God, if you will save Israel by me, if, if I'm really the one that's supposed to be the instrument to deliver Israel, if you truly called me to do this and you're going to save Israel through me as, as your vessel to serve in this capacity to answer your call, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said to me already, because he knows God's already said it to him very clearly, look, I shall put out a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, again, this would take a, a supernatural occurrence, and it is dry on the rest of the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so when he rose early the next morning and squeezed out the fleece, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. And then verse 39, Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me because he knows he's pushing the envelope. But let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece this time. But he says on all the ground, the exact opposite he's asking for, let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. So here's this passage from the Bible where this quite honestly very famous idea has come out among many Christians and God's people. When people talk about you know putting out a fleece before the Lord. Or I'm going to fleece the Lord like Gideon did. And, and, and people read this in a light where they feel like this is a practice that God sort of suggested or instituted through Gideon as a way of determining God's will. Well, let me just say a couple things. First of all, the, the setting out of a fleece here that Gideon does, it's not done in a positive light. It's done in a negative light. 
it's it's done by Gideon for the wrong reasons out of his human weakness. He does this as the result of what? Fear, unbelief, and unwillingness to just accept by faith God's will and God's word that's already been spoken to him. And so therefore, because he's not willing in faith to just act in confidence upon what God said to him, he's asking God to show him again. To verify it again. He's asking God for confirmation. This is very critical. Please note, this is not Gideon trying to determine God's will, right? He already knows what God's will is. God told him multiple times, earlier part of the chapter, God already showed him a sign. Don't you remember fire came out of a rock? So he already knows what God's will is. This is not a man trying to determine God's will. This is a man in unbelief and in human weakness, basically saying, God, can you just confirm it one more time? Actually, could you confirm it two more times? And in his unbelief and not trusting God is asking for verification. And I bring this to your attention because I think we need to be careful of thinking that this is a practice that God has given to us for trying to determine the will of God. That's not really what was going on here anyway. And I would just say, I think it's a very unreliable way to think that the way you should determine God's will is fleecing the Lord. Now listen, did God make a concession and condescend in his mercy and grace to Gideon and do this? Yeah. That just teaches us that God's merciful, that God actually condescended and said, you know what, he's struggling with unbelief and God's kind like that. And so I'm not saying that God may not be merciful and gracious if we do something like Gideon and say, yeah, I, he's struggling. I just I want to reassure his heart. And sometimes I think God does confirm things for us. I'm not saying he doesn't. However, that being said, I think we have to be really careful of trying to use something like fleecing the Lord. We're going to put out our fleece to test if something really is God's will. So we do things like, well, okay, God, if, if it's your will for me to marry this guy, then he'll call me by 8.30. Well, what do you do then if he calls at 8.35? Well, I mean, that's still in the 8.30s, God. So, I mean, thanks for being pretty close. I mean, that's a sketchy way (laughs) to try. Or Lord, if it's your will for me to do this or do that, Listen, the point is, we have way more at our disposal in this day and age. You have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you who testifies to your heart. You have the written revelation of the Word of God. You have the testimony of other Christians who can be wise and godly counselors. In in, in the New Testament, we don't see them putting out fleeces in the book of Acts. We see the Holy Spirit spoke to them. The Holy Spirit guided them. The Holy Spirit forbidden them. I think we have much more reliable ways to determine the will of God than fleecing the Lord. So we just say be careful. Uh, Don't take this as something that is a reliable practice because you may very honestly get way off target in what you're doing. Let's stand, let's pray together.